Good evening. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 and stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> we'll be starting in verse 7. It says, Of which I was made a minister... According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we begin this evening... I think it's important to note the context of our passage. In the second verse of this third chapter, Paul has taken a parenthesis from his primary train of thought to explain to us the, the importance of the ministry to which he has been called to by Christ. This is significant because the ministry that Paul has been called to is the revealing of the mystery which he describes in verse 6 when he says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery speaks to the supernatural unity that is found between Jew and Gentile in the church, and this is a major theme throughout this epistle. For example, this theme is hinted at in chapter 1 when Paul mentions that he, along with the Jews of the early church, were made an inheritance in verse 11 where he says, In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, he teaches us that it was not only the first Jewish believers, but that Gentile believers too uh, are also made a part of that same inheritance. When he says, in him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here he's speaking of Gentile believers, and he goes on in verse 14 and says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And so we see Jew and Gentile brought together in this inheritance. And again in chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, when he says, But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition. Paul then in chapter 4 calls every believer, every member of the church to live out who we truly are in the unity which he has been teaching and which is at the heart of the nature of the church when he says the following in verses 1 to 6, 
Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This mystery of the reconciliation of both Jew and Gentile in Christ as the church, such that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel, this mystery is what God made Paul a minister of, as he explains in the first verse from our text this evening, verse 7 which says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. In our passage this evening, Paul continues to explain this ministry and in doing so mentions the twofold nature of his ministry. In verse 8, we read of the first way in which he ministers when Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ. First, notice Paul's humility and acknowledgement that it is only by grace that this ministry was given to him. This humility is brought to light in verses 7 and 8 when we see Paul say that he was made a minister. When Paul calls himself the very least of all the saints. When Paul, when Paul refers to his ministry as the gift of God's grace and this grace, and when Paul speaks of the ministry as being given to him, I think it's important to see Paul in his humility here as an example for us as we consider how God has called us to serve. Let me ask you this, when it comes to Christian service, When it comes to doing ministry, when it comes to doing the work of the Lord, how do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as the least, as not worthy of the work that you are doing? Do you think of yourself as lower than those whom you are serving? Do you think of yourself as the foremost of sinners, as one who more than anyone else needs the salvation offered by Christ? Or are you God's gift to the church? Are you more gifted for service than those in the local body? Are there things that are beneath you, things that you wouldn't entertain doing because they are too low for someone such as yourself? The former, that of a humble attitude, represents Paul's conception of himself and I think is a key indicator of a man called to serve the Lord like Paul was. Paul also considers all that he is doing for the Lord as being under the banner of the grace of God shown to him. As he says in verse 8, this grace was given. He refers to his calling to ministry as this grace. And I can imagine why Paul thinks this way. Prior to being saved, prior to his blinding encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus road, Paul was persecuting the body of Christ. He was doing everything he could to attack and hinder the church. And now, 
He is not only a member of the very church that he was persecuting, but he is proclaiming the gospel that he previously fought so hard to silence. Paul in no way deserved salvation, let alone to be used by God in such a mighty and redeeming way, and the same is true for you and I. We also, at one time, rejected the very Christ whom we now serve as our Lord and Savior. Therefore, not only our salvation is by grace, but all the more any kind of service we do is God showing grace to us. That we would be allowed to serve the body after we were once children of wrath and sons of disobedience is truly an amazing thing. Notice too that Paul refers to his ministry as being given to him. Paul did not appoint himself a minister. He did not name it and claim his ministry for himself. He did not appoint himself as an apostle. He did not treat the work that he was doing like a career. On the contrary, Paul's ministry was given to him by the true and living God who saved him. It is an unfortunate thing that in this day and age, so many young men are trained for ministry in such a way that they treat it like a career, like climbing the corporate ladder, rather than humbly waiting for the Lord to call them into the work that Jesus Christ would have for them. Second, notice that Paul's ministry is the proclamation of the good news. Another way of translating the Greek word for proclamation is preach. Paul's ministry consists of telling people the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that this is not just Paul's ministry, but that it is the ministry of all who call themselves Christian. It is the calling of every saint to proclaim the gospel to those who are dead in their transgressions and sins in which we once ourselves walked. It is the calling of every believer to boldly tell those whom God has placed in our lives that because of sin, everyone is guilty before a righteous and holy God who judges and condemns all because of our sin. But God has done something about this for those who are His, those whom are called, those who are chosen before the foundation of the world, those who are a part of His elect. God, in Jesus Christ's sacrifice, has died on the cross in our place for our sin so that we can not only escape the penalty and condemnation of our sin, but so that we can spend eternity with Him, doing the very thing that we were created to be most satisfied by, namely worshiping Him and enjoying His presence forever. And that all of this is available to you if you trust in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. If you, if you do not know Christ, I urge you, I plead you, plead with you, Do not let another moment pass by. Put your trust in Christ alone, and he will save you. And do it this evening. Third, he made this proclamation to the Gentiles. Paul's ministry was directed to the Gentiles. Paul mentions this in Romans 11, when he says the following in verses 13 to 14, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. 
Later in Romans 15, verse 16, Paul again refers to his ministry to the Gentiles when he says the following, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me by God, for, for me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And Christ himself specifically commissioned Paul to be his chosen instrument to the Gentiles, which we clearly see in Acts 9.15, where Luke records the following statement of Christ's regarding Paul. He says, But the Lord said to me, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. So Paul was called to preach the gospel, the good news, to the Gentiles. And fourth, the good news that he proclaimed to the Gentiles was the unfathomable riches of Christ. Notice here that we see the contents of what Paul proclaimed. Namely, the unfathomable riches of Christ. And all of what Paul preached can be boiled down to this. As Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul was focused on preaching Christ. And we preach Christ here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. At least that's our goal. And This is all that's really needed, isn't it? If one knows Christ crucified, if one hears the proclamation of the unfathomable riches of Christ, then they will have all they need. They will have all they need to deal with whatever circumstances are going on around them. Some think that we need to preach more about the current political climate, that we need to preach about elections and policies and laws and even government overreach. And we do address topics that are of particular relevance when we feel it important to equip the saints uh, to face those things going on in our lives outside of this building. But this evening's text makes it clear that the primary focus, the majority of our teaching, our week-in, week-out preaching should be on the unfathomable riches of Christ as they are revealed in His Holy Scriptures. Now, these riches may not be what you think they are. There are some in the prosperity gospel camp that would have you think that these riches consist of material wealth, health, and prosperity, and this could be no further from what Paul means. Those worldly kind of riches are limited and finite. But the riches that Paul speaks of here are unfathomable and unsearchable. They are a kind of riches that cannot be diminished or depleted. They are spiritual and eternal. So what exactly is Paul referring to here when he says riches of Christ? Well, let me just say that answering this question is to set oneself upon an impossible task. Because the riches of Christ are unfathomable, as our text says. And this is rooted in the very nature of God himself. The Greek word for unfathomable 
can also be translated unsearchable and describes something that cannot be fully comprehend or comprehended or explored. There is no limit to the riches of Christ. They are past finding out. The riches of Christ are limitless because Christ is the second person of the triune Godhead and God is limitless. God is infinite in all of his character. He is infinite in love. He is infinite in grace. He is infinite in mercy. And the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the riches of his mercy, the riches of his love are also infinite like him. They are past finding out. They are never lacking and they are always full. They cannot be depleted. So with that in mind, let's try and take a look at the tip of the iceberg and consider what Scripture does teach us regarding the riches of Christ. The Scriptures speak of the riches of His wisdom. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. The Scripture speaks of the riches of His grace. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. And Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The scriptures speak of the riches of his glory. Philippians 4.19, and my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 1.18, so that you, the so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, as well as Ephesians 3.16, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. And the Scriptures speak of the riches of His mercy. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Something marvelous about all of this is that Paul proclaimed these unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, not simply to just inform them of Christ's riches. He's not just telling them that Christ is rich for the sake of it. He proclaimed these riches because in Christ, His riches become our riches. Notice that in a number of the references that we just read, these riches are directed toward those who are in Christ. For example, our redemption and forgiveness accord with the riches of His grace. He shows us the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us. He fulfills all our needs according to His riches in glory. It says that we would receive from God according to the riches of His glory. And we also read that God has loved us with a great love because He is rich in mercy. Dear brothers and sisters, we may know these riches because we know Christ. 
For there is no greater thing that, than to have within our own possession the unfathomable, unsearchable, infinite riches of Christ. And if you have these riches, you will have need of nothing else, for you will have all that you need. Let's now consider the second way in which Paul ministers. We read the following in verse 9. And to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains what this term mystery means in the following words. Mystery in the New Testament sense is a technical term pertaining to a truth which, because of its character, can never be attained unto or arrived at by the unaided human intellect or by mere human ability. The thing itself is clear, speaking of the mystery, but because man is what he is, finite and sinful, he cannot by his own unaided intellect arrive at it or understand it. And so Paul, by the Holy Spirit, brings to light that which was in the dark, namely this mystery hidden in God for ages, but now revealed through the ministry given to Paul by God. This phrase, the administration of the mystery, is an interesting one. And as Chris explained last Sunday evening, this word administration means house rules. Or said another way, it means stewardship, the stewardship of the mystery. In this case, God is the steward of the mystery. After all, the mystery was hidden in God for ages. And thus, it is up to God to determine when as well as the means by which this mystery is to no longer be hidden, but made known to be brought to light. And the phrase at the end of verse 9 really brings this to light and is Paul's way of making sure we understand this point, the phrase, God who created all things. Why does Paul say this? What does God, being the creator of all things, have to do with the stewardship of or the administration of God's plan to include the Gentiles in salvation. Paul brings to our attention that God is creator of all things because it reminds us who is in charge. It reminds us whose world this is. It reminds us who is the one who started it all and is working all things out from the moment that he spoke everything into existence unto the fullness of time. God has a plan. God is in charge of it. And he is accomplishing it. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10 says the following. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, God, who created all things, is in charge. His counsel will be established, and He will accomplish all of His good pleasure. Praise be to God that it is His good pleasure to make a way for us Gentiles to be included in His plan of salvation 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Praise be to God that everyone, Jew and Gentile, are saved through the same kind of faith, namely the faith that Abraham had all the way back in Genesis 12, before he was circumcised, when he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Praise be to God that God's plan as creator of all things was to break down the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile and bring them together in the one man Jesus Christ in the church. Praise be to God that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God, that both can be saved through the very same kind of faith. These are wonderful and glorious things. Now Paul goes on in verses 10 and 11 to explain why God has done this when he says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This term, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, refers to the angels. And what Paul is saying here is that what God is doing through the church, is a display of all the facets of his wisdom. And this is a display to beings that are in God's presence all the time. To beings that see God acting in wisdom in all matters of creation. To beings whose sole created purpose is to continually worship God. It is these beings who more than any other created beings know and see the wisdom of God. Paul is saying that these beings are in awe of what, is God, of what God is doing through the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the following regarding this point. The apostle is asserting that what is happening in the church is so stupendous so glorious that even the bright angelic beings who have spent their entire existence in the presence of God, even they are staggered and amazed at what they see in and through the church. These angels created by God have always been immediately in the presence of God. But according to the apostle, what takes place in the church is something that even they had never thought of or imagined. It surpasses even their knowledge, their comprehension, and even their imagination. Peter says the following in 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them, he's speaking of the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. He's speaking of the salvation that is possible in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think we find our answer to this question in verse 12, where Paul, speaking of Christ, says the following, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. 
Here Paul is telling us that in Christ, through his death for our sin and his resurrection unto new life, he has torn the temple curtain in half from top to bottom. In Christ, we Gentiles now have access to God the Father who created all things. And it is not a timid access. It is a bold access, a confident access, not because of anything to do with us, but everything to do with Christ. We Gentiles who were once without Christ, who were at one time alienated from the citizenship of Israel, who were strangers to the covenants of promise, who had no hope, who were without God in this world. We Gentiles are now, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, we are now brought near by His blood. We are no longer far off, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have access to God. And this is an access that is like a child that has access to his loving and compassionate Father. And this has been God's plan all along. As we close this evening... Like the angels, I think Paul intends for us to marvel. I think Paul intends for us to be in awe. To be in awe of the manifold wisdom of God shown to us in the administration of this ministry, which is the church, and to be grateful that he has included us Gentiles in his plan of salvation. I think Paul intends for us to worship and glorify God. So my prayer is that our hearts would be filled with affections that rightly accord with these wonderful and amazing truths which we have seen this evening about our Lord. And now I invite Noel to come back up and close us with a final song after I pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as Paul prayed that you would open up the eyes of our hearts. Lord, that we would see these things, that we would marvel at your manifold wisdom in what you are doing through the church. Lord, making it possible for Gentiles to be saved, for us to be saved. Lord, we do not deserve this, and yet you have done it because you are a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of love. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.